ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. This is the Acts of the Apostles. For more information, go to carolinesprings.church. And as we were preparing the, the sermon roster with Jono, uh, he, he found out that I had Acts 17 and he said he was really jealous because he wanted to preach this chapter. Uh, because there are so many great things that we could talk about in this chapter and so many things that apply to us. Um, but we're actually not going to have time today. When I was practicing my sermon a few weeks ago, um, I got up to verse 5 and it was half an hour already. So I'm like, we, we, uh, we are not going to do this whole chapter. So let me talk to you about some of the things that we are not going to talk about. And if you are involved in a small group, uh, in, during this week, these may be things that you want to chat together about. Uh, so maybe take some notes and for the small group leaders, I've, I've got some of these topics here uh, if you can't quite write down fast enough. But in verses 4 and 12, there's a really interesting little phrase which is repeated and it says, talks about prominent Greek women. And that's kind of an odd thing to stick in those verses there. If you want to look it up on the internet, you can find out what other people have written about it. But ask the question, why does Luke, when writing about what Paul's doing, why does he keep repeating this idea of emphasising these prominent Greek women? Because they actually don't do much in the chapter. Also in verse 34, he mentions a woman named Damaris. And ask yourself, why, is, why does he keep mentioning this? And, and perhaps it's got something to do with the revolutionary nature of the gospel. And we know that in Galatians chapter 3, um, Paul talks about uh, there's no difference between Jew or Gentile anymore, no difference between slave or free, uh, no difference between male or female. And the gospel started breaking down all these barriers that were in society. So maybe Luke was doing that little trick that, that Jono has talked about earlier, where he starts mentioning people early that are going to become important later on. And the fact that he's just mentioning the women, maybe there's something that he's saying about, you're going to notice a change in the way that the women are regarded with the gospel later on in the book. And so he might be preparing you for that. So you might be able to want to have a look at that. You might want to have a look at um, the topic of how the gospel, as it has spread through the world, has liberated people, uh, because it certainly has um, and the gospel, one of the great things that it does wherever it goes is it does break down those barriers. And it breaks down uh, racism, which is something that, that we're still working on today. Uh, slavery is still in the world today and, and where missionaries go and where the gospel goes, we're still breaking those things down and we're still breaking down the male-female thing uh, at the moment. That's, that's something we're still grappling with in our country even. So there's something that you might want to look at. Also in verse 27... Um, in verse 27, let me read that for you here. So we get to verse 27 and we find uh, that Luke writes this, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Now this is in the sermon that we were talking about with the kids just before where there's the unknown God and, and the people were so religious that they worshipped this God who they, they said, well in case there's a God that we don't know about, we better sacrifice to this particular God. So they did that 
And Paul says, hey, I know this God that you don't know about, so let's talk to you about him. And he says that this God came and did stuff for us, even though we didn't invite him to do that, even though we didn't know that, the, that he even existed, he came to us to kind of to come and help us. And he said this, he did it perhaps so that we might reach out for him and find him, though he's not actually very far from any one of us. That, that idea of God not being far from us, but us struggling to reach out for him is one that people have grappled with through the centuries. This picture here on the Sistine Chapel is called The Creation of Adam. It's by Michelangelo and this is exactly what it's talking about. And if you look at that picture there, you can see in the creation of Adam, God has created Adam. And in the story of the garden, what does God do? God is reaching, stretching. If you look at God in that picture there, he is the angels are kind of holding onto one arm and God's stretching with the other one, everything that he can because he wants to connect with Adam. But what's the best that we can do? He kind of raises this little... Right? And, and that's what Adam's... He's going, I can't be bothered. That's what that picture is showing. And that's kind of... That's how our attitude is to God a lot of the time. We think sometimes that we're reaching out to God, but we are not reaching out to God anywhere near as much as He is reaching out to us. And in history, humans have not reached out to God anywhere near as much as God has reached out to us. And that's what Paul is describing there in verse 27. So you might want to have a think about that. In verses 23 and 28... Uh, Paul in, in the sermon does something very interesting when he's talking about this altar to the unknown God. He quotes people who were not Christians and says that what they said was a message from God to the people. Now, if I did that today, there would be some question marks. If I quoted, you know, Richard Dawkins and said that this is a man telling us about God. I don't know. I, I'm not sure John I would be terribly happy when I got back. We, but it's interesting that Paul does this. He, he takes a guy called Epimenides, and who, who was a poet and who wrote this phrase, in him we live and move and have our being. And then he quotes another guy called Eratus who said, we are his offspring. Now these were not Christians, they were not believers, they, they worshipped pagan gods but Paul said these people were talking about God. What, what do we do with that? That might be something that you want to have a chat about in your small groups as well. In verse 32, if you look at verse 32, we see um, Paul talking about the resurrection. And as soon as he starts talking about the resurrection, people get upset. And that happens time and time and time again in the Bible. Because the resurrection is, is a, a stupid idea. People just look at that and they say, that's just... That's just wrong. No one gets resurrected. We all know that. And so as Christians, when we believe in the resurrection, the world thinks that we're stupid. The world thinks that we're idiots. If you want to read a modern writer who will explain to you very clearly and very sharply about how the world thinks about you, if you believe in a literal resurrection, there's a guy called Hugh Mackay, uh, you can buy his book in Big W, uh, it's called Beyond Belief, and I read it a little while ago, and he very clearly articulates what the world thinks of those 
who believe in the resurrection. And, they, and, and it's, it's interesting to hear what they say and to try and understand their point of view. Now, not all Christians believe in the literal resurrection of the dead, we understand that, but, but that's the position that this church has. And so, if you look at verse 32, uh, you, can, you can maybe have a chat about, well, this is what I believe and this is what I've seen and, and these are some of the other beliefs and if you happen to disagree in your small groups while you're talking about that, that's okay, no one's going to report you to the pastors and we're not going to kick you out of the church, that's all right, you're allowed to have some different views. But you see that happening here, there's an argument about, well, what does the resurrection of the dead actually mean and will we actually be resurrected and was Jesus resurrected? And that becomes a big thing that Paul grapples here, grapples with here. Now, these are all fantastic topics which we could have talked about today, but these are not the topics which we're going to talk about today. If you want to look at those, you're going to have to do your own research. You can jump on the internet, there's tons of great information out there, there's also tons of bad information out there and so you'll look at it all and you're going to have to figure out which is good information, which is bad information and I think doing that is fantastic because that is self-feeding and that's growing your faith and that's helping you learn how to read the Bible and interact with, with theology and all that kind of stuff. So you can do all of that but the main thing that we're talking about today comes early in the, in the book. So if you get to Acts chapter 17 and go right back to the very start, we'll start reading through this and we'll have a look at it here. And verse 1 says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and we're going to stop there. We haven't even got to the main part of the sentence, but we're going to stop. This is just the end. Why did he pass through Amphipolis and Apollonia? Because when you think about it, that's not a very nice thing for him to do. Surely the people in those towns need the gospel too, right? So why did Paul abandon them in, in one sense? Why did he pass through them to go to some other town? It's not that Amphipolis and Apollonia were smaller or less important or, or any different to the town that he ended up in. So why did he ignore them? Why did he pass through them? What we want you to do right now is if you've got your kids with you, have a chat to your kids, see if you can come up with some ideas. If you don't have kids with you, get together in a little group, just throw some ideas around. Um, see if you can think of what are some reasons why Paul might have passed through these towns and then, you know, in about one minute we'll get you to come back here and, and we'll, we'll have a chat about uh, some of the reasons that I found. So let's do that now. All you get, we're going to do this a couple of times through the sermon, so you're going to have to be snappy. So what are some of the reasons, what, we, we struggle with this a little bit in, in our society, I mean I know that I struggle with it, sometimes I walk past a person on the street and, and I get this feeling, well I should talk to them about Jesus but I have no idea who they are and should I stop and should I not and sometimes I've stopped and talked to them and they've just gone, what are you doing, you're an idiot, I don't even know you. Um, other times you hear of people who they do that and the person was looking for someone to talk to them and there's all kinds of miracles that happen around that and I remember John o telling a story about something like that happening just out here. So what, what do we do with that? Why did Paul ignore some people and not ignore others? Well perhaps one reason why he did that in this particular case is that in the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia there was no synagogue. But the town that he stopped at, which was Thessalonica, there was a synagogue. Now, a synagogue is basically a Jewish church. 
um, what was happening at the time was that the world, uh, the Roman world was in charge where Paul was and there was a persecution going on against uh, all kinds of faiths but Christianity was starting to be persecuted and so it was important for Christianity to be aligned with Judaism and the reason for this was because the Jewish religion was protected. You were allowed to be a Jew and so what the Christians were doing at the time is they were saying, well, Jesus was a Jew, he was actually coming out of the Jewish faith and so we're sort of aligned with the Jews so that way Christianity came under protection and they weren't meant to be persecuted because they were part of this legal religion. The Jews hated that because they were like, no, we killed Jesus we didn't like him, we don't want these Christians to be saying that they're part of us and so that's what a lot of the riots and the fights and things were about. And so what happened was that Paul and some of the early missionaries did this strategy where they went to places where there were Jewish synagogues because that was a starting point for them. They could start in the Jewish synagogue and talk about the Bible which people were already grappling with and they could say, look, these are prophecies about Jesus here and they had a starting place to work with. And there's a bit of a message in that for us with evangelism, but where do we start with people? Well, you've got to start where they already are. We can't just expect to transport someone over here when they're not ready to talk about that. We've got to talk to them about where they are. And so that's kind of what Paul is doing. And with this idea of, of people being protected by the Roman Empire, we've got some coins which I want to show you up here. Uh, if we go to the next slide, <coughs> here's, here's some coins uh, this is from uh, uh, an emperor called Flavius Vespanius and this is his coin that he minted for himself and this is uh, a coin called the Judean, uh, the Judean Triumph and the, the little word under the bottom is Judea and what you see there is, is a lady who's a Jew and she's sitting, her hands are tied together and there's a trophy behind her, it's not a plant, it's kind of like a stand with a suit of armour on it, that's saying we conquered these people because after the battle you took your armour off and you put it on a stand. All right, saying the battle's finished, we captured this slave. Now, what this was actually turned out to, this is, um, this is propaganda. They, they didn't have paper and things to print, to print um, advertising, so they did their advertising on their coins. And what they had here was they were saying, we have conquered the Jews. So we're in charge of the Jews and so we're the ones who make sure that they serve the right religion. They are under us, is what this coin is saying. If you go to the next one, you'll see this one here that says, the inscription around that one says, Caesar Augustus, the divine son of God. Now this becomes a problem when Jesus comes onto the scene, because what does Jesus say? I'm the son of God. And this is why, in the end, this is the accusation the Jews brought against Jesus to get him crucified. They wanted to crucify him for blasphemy, but the charge they brought to the Romans was that he said he's the Son of God. What does that mean? I want to be the Emperor, is what they were saying. And so Christianity, when they were worshipping this person who claimed to be God... That person is saying they're the emperor. So the Romans were very suspicious of the Christians that they were going to bring about revolt. So that's part of what's wrapped up in why they're going to the synagogue. Go to the next slide. Here's another coin with the advertising on it. Again, this is uh, the divine Augustus. It's another coin like that. He's sitting on his throne there. The next one. See if you can tell me what this coin is saying. What's this coin advertising? 
Remember, it's all propaganda. They give the coins to the people and the coins have to use them every day and they see what's on them and it's sending a message. What message is this person sending? Romans are in charge of the world. Yes, very good, exactly. Now, specifically, this particular coin is saying on one side, I am Domitian and I've just had a baby and that baby is going to rule the world. All right, that's a picture of his son. My son, I am divine, my son will be divine and he's going to rule even more than me. That's what he was getting ready for his child to become the next emperor and he did that by minting this coin. So you have this idea that the Romans are in charge and they're, going to, they, they're operating the world and so the, Jews, the Christians have to fit inside that. And the way that they started doing it with the missionaries was they would go to places where Christianity could be sort of legal by aligning themselves with the synagogues. And so that's why Paul skipped those two towns and went to Thessalonica. Another reason why they did it is kind of in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, where Jesus said, go to the Jews first, because they're the ones that already have an understanding of what's going on spiritually here. And then he says, from there, you can start to expand out to the rest of the earth. So there's a couple of reasons why he, he passed through those two towns. But let's keep reading. After they passed through those two towns, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. On three Sabbath days, so Sabbath comes once a week, right? So for three days in a row, Paul gets up in the pulpit and he preaches. Now again, you think about that here. What would happen if some kind of stranger came in and they showed up? Would we say, hey, come and preach for us? No, they wouldn't. So how is it that Paul gets to preach three Sabbaths in a row to this church? Have a think about that, chat amongst yourselves again. All right, anybody got any great ideas that they want to shout out? If you don't, that's okay. Reputation, yes. Who said that? I see that hand. Reputation. What reputation did he have? Yeah. Yes, they were very curious about what was happening. Christianity was spreading all over that part of the world and the news was going faster than the missionaries were. So they were curious. But Paul had an added bonus with his reputation as well in that he grew up under a particular teacher and that particular teacher was called Gamaliel who was a very famous Jewish scholar and only the best of the best got to learn under Gamaliel and he was of the best of the best, he was one of the best. And so everybody, growing up, everybody knew that Paul was going to be some kind of theological freak, he was going to be amazing, he was going to be the head lecturer and so when they knew that this Paul guy was coming, ah, that's the kid who had that, he's going to, ah, let's listen. So he arrived, let's listen to this guy because he's way better than the loser that we have as our pastor, right? He's going to preach us a much better sermon. So they were able to invite him in and, and he could teach them because of the reputation of Christianity, as you rightly said, and also the reputation that Paul had, uh, Paul had himself. Good answer. Uh, there's also uh, uh, some other reasons perhaps why they might have been able to speak and that is that their services were pretty different to ours. Um, their services were way more interactive than ours. Um, if you remember, the way that Jesus got to speak was that when he went to a synagogue, they said, hey, have you got something to say? Have you got a word of exhortation to bring to the people? And he stood up and he said, yeah, I do actually. I'm going to speak to you from Isaiah. And then he spoke part of 
a verse of Isaiah and they're all waiting for the next bit because they hated the first bit and loved the, le- the next bit, but he left it at the first bit and they got angry at him, all right? And they, they kicked him out of the synagogue. But they invited people to speak. That was their style. If you've ever been to uh, a type of church called Brethren, there's, there's open and closed Brethren. The open Brethren, that's how they do it. You go and they don't really have a pastor speak to you. People stand up from the congregation and they speak and they preach to one another. That's kind of what the Jews did. And so when a guest came, well, you know, we've heard this guy and this guy and they always well, say the same thing every week and we're sick of it. A new guy's come in, Woo-hoo-hoo! all right, well, here's something new. And so Paul would come in and they invited him to speak three Sabbaths in a row. And so he was able to speak to them. Um, and so let's keep reading on. That's giving us a bit of context for where we're going with this. Verse 3. So, as he was speaking to them, it says, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. The Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So, we think about that verse 3 and we ask, why did he have to explain that the Messiah had to die and rise? If Christianity, as we said over here, was, was spreading through the empire they should have heard about Jesus and they should have known that, well, Jesus had to die and rise again because we all know that. We all know that that was part of the plan. Jesus came to die and to rise again. We know that. But they didn't know that. See, the idea of the Messiah was a pretty sensitive topic among the Jews and among the whole people in Judea at the time. If you remember the the story of the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, where after Jesus has died, you've got the disciples of Jesus, a couple of them are walking along this road to a town called Emmaus. Do you remember that story? And they're walking along and they're all sad and and this person comes up beside them and says, why are you so sad? And they're like, what do you mean why are you so sad? Have you been in Jerusalem? Do you know what's happened this weekend? Come on, this whole thing happened and riots and Jesus was killed and we were following Jesus and, and now we don't know what's going on. The reason they were so upset is actually quite specific because there had been multiple messiahs, people that they thought was going to rescue Israel. And the rescue was not a spiritual one, kind of as we think more about it. It was definitely a war one. Jesus was going to come or the messiah was supposed to come and raise an army and kick out the Romans. That's what they thought that the Old Testament had prophesied. But Jesus has to explain to them that's not exactly what the Old Testament was saying and Paul does the same thing. And what was happening is they were walking along this particular road here which is a road uh, from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus and this town is mentioned in the Jewish histories as a village which was burned to the ground because of the rebellion of one of these messiahs that they thought was going to come. And what happened at the end of the rebellion, if you go to the next slide, those 2,000 that were crucified, they put up 2,000 crosses either side of the road and strung them up there. So basically what you've got here is you've got these, these two disciples of Jesus walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus and it's, they're not just sad that Jesus has died, they're walking between the remnants of these 2,000 crosses which were on either side of the road and every step they're looking left and right being reminded these people were crucified. That rebellion, that uprising that the Messiah was supposed to deliver us, that died. It didn't happen and that's what's going to happen with Jesus the same as it did and these 2,000 people that got killed by the side of the road, that's probably going to happen to us as well. What is going to become of us? 
And so every step of this journey has these old crosses reminding them of their past as a Jewish nation. These messiahs keep being false messiahs and this Jesus is just another one. And so Jesus comes alongside them and says, what's wrong? Look at the crosses, come on, don't you know our history? And he explains to them from the Old Testament, the Messiah that you're looking for is the wrong one. You're looking for the wrong deliverance. And then the rest of the story goes on. You can read about it in Luke chapter 24. But that's what Paul does when he explains to the Jews from the Scriptures that the Messiah had to come and die and rise again and deliver them in a different way than what they were expecting. They were expecting to have the coins changed where the Judean lady is on the ground as a captive. Well, we're going to fix that. The Messiah is going to fix that. We're going to throw out all those coins. We're going to start again. And he explains that's not what the plan is. And in the Scriptures, some of the verses that talk about it, we're going to put up on the screen here. For example, in Psalm 41, verse 9, you see a prediction of of Judas's betrayal after eating bread with Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 11, uh, it talks about 30 pieces of silver being given to bad people to betray the good shepherd. Uh, You see in Isaiah chapter 53 and also Isaiah chapter 50, this idea of a suffering servant. And they'd never made that connection that the Messiah was actually supposed to suffer. They'd never made, they'd never connected the Messiah with those types of passages. But Jesus did, and that's what Paul's doing here in Psalm chapter 22. Uh, If you read through Psalm 22, you see a whole bunch of connections with Jesus. Uh, It says, that's where Jesus quotes from when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cry of a desperate person in Psalm 22. Also in Psalm 22, you see uh, prophecies of insults, bones being ripped out of joint, which is what happened when they dumped the cross in the ground, Uh, being thirsty, we know that happened to Jesus and they gave him particular drinks. Uh, You see a prophecy of the heart bursting, which is we know that that's actually how Jesus died. He didn't die from what you were normally supposed to die from in crucifixion, his heart burst. Um, you see the, the prediction of piercing of the hands and the feet and you see pr- pr- predictions of gambling for his clothes. All of that is in Psalm 22. And the ancient Israelites never made that connection with what happened to Jesus and so that's what Paul is explaining. So the people are getting interested and they're wanting to know more and so what happens next? Well, what happens next is where we really start to get to the, the meat of our application for how this really impacts us today. So we'll read from where we finished. He's explaining and proving to the, that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So he says that that one that happened, that's the Messiah. And we've got to rethink what we think about what the Messiah was meant to do. And then it says, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But, verse 5, but other Jews were jealous. And so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and they formed a mob and started a riot in the city. And from that point, it all just goes bad. So, other Jews were jealous. Why were they jealous? Well, they were jealous because the gospel was doing well and they weren't. As you had said, the gospel was spreading. And they're like, we don't know. No. 
This is messing up everything that we thought was supposed to happen. This means that we're not as important. If Jesus becomes important, then what's going to happen to the Jewish religion? What's going to happen to our synagogue? And it's not that they rejected the message, but they got jealous. Jealousy just stuffs things up wherever jealousy is. And that's a really important thing for us to be aware of in the next year or two in our church. Because our church is growing. When I first came here almost a year ago now, um, the church was around this size most weeks. Now we look at this Sunday and go, oh, it's a bit small, isn't it? Where is everybody? Because our church is growing. New people are coming along. And as new people come along, things change. They change in a number of ways. You have new talented leaders come along who want to start new things. You have new people come along who see new ways of doing the old things that you used to do. Also, what happens is that the way that you were doing things before stops working. And it's a very common thing when you've got a small church that grows into a big church. The people that started at the church, they say to the pastor, Pastor, you used to come and visit me and care for me and you don't do that anymore. Have you changed? Do you not love me? And the pastor's like, no, I love you, but it's a different church now. I've got to pastor it in a different way. And so the pastor has to rearrange the organisation and you don't get as much face time with the pastor anymore. And all of those things are happening all at once in a church which is growing and very quickly jealousy springs up. And the people that it's most likely to spring up in are actually the people who were the leaders when it was little. Because they were big fish in a little pond. And it's not that their ministry has shrunk or anything, it's just that the pond's got bigger. And so what used to look like a big ministry might now not look like such a big ministry, which means I'm not so important anymore, which means, oh, I get jealous when you see other people's ministries blossoming and growing up. That's something that we have to watch out for in this church because we can actually hurt ourselves if we get jealous of each other and we'll start riots among ourselves to bring down the gospel that we're trying to promote ourselves. So watch out for jealousy. And particularly, when you see jealousy happening, watch the leaders. We're going to talk about a little bit about leaders right now because jealousy and, and factions and all those kinds of things are always led by leaders. How do you know the quality of leaders? Well, I'm going to argue this morning that you don't tell the quality of a leader by looking at the leader. Because leaders can fake it. If there's anything a leader is good at, it's faking it. Right? I know tons of pastors who are all good people. Some of them are my friends. Right? And they've got great jobs at big churches because they're really good at faking it. And they can go into the interview and they can say all the right things. But then when they get into the position, there's, there's problems because, well, they said the right things, but really they maybe weren't the right person for that job, but it was an awesome job, so we'll go after that job. Leaders are good, are good at faking it. You don't tell the quality of a leader by looking at the leader. You tell the quality of a leader by looking at the leader's followers. Leaders 
hide behind those that serve them if they're bad leaders. You look at the supporters of the leader and you say, does the leader have integrity? Well, let's look at the supporters of the leader and do those supporters have integrity? And that's what's happening here in this chapter in the book of Acts. What you've got is the Jews were jealous, the leaders, so they rounded up who? They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. Are the people in the marketplace leaders? No, they're just a mob. They rounded up some bad characters and those bad characters knew more bad characters, so they rounded them up. And then the bad characters started the riot and started all the problems. But the leaders squeaky clean. We've got nothing to do with this. This is your problem. That's how bad leaders work. And what you'll find is that when you've got a leader and a group of people who are working in an area that the the leader's invested in, when things go belly up, if they're a leader without integrity, they'll take a step back and they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Look what they did. No, they're not my people. Well, they're sort of my people, but I didn't didn't endorse that. No, 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 you have to deal with that. But a good leader, a good leader with integrity, when their people do something, the good leader will step in and say, that's me. My fault? Yes, this went bad. That person did the wrong thing, but I'm their leader. And I'm the one to be accountable, so if there is blame to be shed, that's on me. Even though I didn't do it, my person did it. So blame me, because that leader has integrity. If you want to know who has good integrity as leaders in the world around you, look at their followers. How do those followers act? And when things go bad, does the leader step in and take action and fix it and accept the blame themselves or do they distance themselves? Because if they distance themselves, that's, that's a leader not to be trusted. So watch for that. Watch for that in our church. Watch for that in the world. Jesus talks about trees and fruit in Matthew chapter 17. He says that, that good leaders will produce good followers People who are led well, who are growing from the roots well, will produce good fruit. It all follows, and he talks about that spiritually, he talks about that practically, it's all kind of tied in together. Things follow in a particular order. If there is good fruit, great. If there's bad fruit, where is the bad fruit coming from? Don't blame the fruit, blame the tree. Insecure leaders produce insecure followers, They produce more insecure leaders. Unethical leaders produce unethical followers. And and there's the whole passages about wolves in sheep's clothing in Matthew chapter 17. I'll give you an example of a good leader here. This is a friend of mine. I love this guy so much. Uh, His name is Jeremiah Temple. And we'll bring it up on the screen here. It's the I was going to skip this bit if we didn't have time, so the guys are trying to find it up there at the back. This is not him, but do you remember this happening in the Yarra River a couple of years ago? Uh, The Sierra Leonean community had just recently come to Australia. They were struggling to cope. They'd come from violent wars and all kinds of things, and, and the Sierra Leonean community was really having a hard time. And just when it was all getting really bad, uh, there was this young man uh, who was down at the Yarra River and something happened and he fell in and drowned and there was accusations of rape and all kinds of stuff was going on. 
James Smith, his name was. Well, a man named Jeremiah, who's the next, go after the next slide here. This guy here, he was at my church and uh, he asked me, look, you know, can you come along to this funeral? So we went along to the funeral and I was just really a fly on the wall of the funeral. And it was really at that point that I started to understand a little bit about what the Sierra Leonean refugee community was going through at that time. The church was absolutely packed and they were, there was, they were upset not only about the death but the way it happened and the accusations of, of the stuff that was going on in the paper and, and they really didn't know what to do. And what Jeremiah did with his uncle is he said, we need to do something about this. There are these accusations coming towards the Sierra Leone community and we understand that we as the Sierra Leone community have to take ownership for this. These are our children that are doing these things. They're our teenagers. It doesn't matter that we are refugees who have been kicked out of our country. That's not an excuse. We need to take responsibility for our people and that's what he did. And he and his uncle started what's called now the Sierra Leone Association and they got together and started working on how do we fix this problem? How do we help our youth so that our youth don't become delinquents and don't become people who have no future because we want our young people to have a future? What happened here was this guy who had nothing to do with the kid that drowned in the river, he stood up and he said, I didn't do that but I'm going to take ownership for that. And we and the other elders of the Sierra Leone refugee community, we are going to fix the problem that's happening in our youth. We're not going to wait for the government to do something. We're not going to blame the government. We're not going to ask other people to fix this. We were not the ones that started the war, which is why we had to leave our country. We were not the ones who meant that our kids came here and have no cult. That's not our fault, but we are going to make a difference going forward. And that's what he did. And you will find now that Sierra Leone community are not in the news anymore. They are not causing problems all over town anymore. And it's because of this guy, because he was a leader of integrity who put himself in the middle and said, if you're going to blame someone, blame me. And me and my family, we will fix this situation. That's an example of a leader with integrity. Someone who will get in there and make a difference. Now, in our world, we've got some leadership issues at the moment. And if you go to the next slide, here's some highlights of some of them. I'm not going to say whether these are good or bad. It's up for you, all right? But you've got a leadership thing going on in America right now. You've got Hillary and the Trumpster. And which one is a good leader? Well, yes, I'm, I won't say anything because I'm being recorded, Okay. <laughs> But which one are they going to vote for? And you've got one who's, if she gets in, they're going to impeach her and send her to jail. And the other one that if he gets in, they're like, well, this could either change the world for the better or could cause World War III. We don't know what's going to happen. And people, they're looking at these leaders saying, who do we vote for? Well, if I was able to give any of them some advice, I'd be saying, stop looking at the leader Start looking at who's around them. And are these leaders saying, I will step in and take the blame for what's happening? I will take responsibility? Or is the leader backing away saying, oh, that problem, that was somebody else. We'll kind of bury that. Don't look at the leader. Look at their followers. And look at their response to their followers and how much 
they stick with their followers. You've also got the Caroline Springs issue with the home invasions right around this area. Now, I'm really not across who's doing that. I, I haven't paid much attention to it. But who is to blame? Well, look at who's not saying anything. Because those the young kids that are doing that, they must be in a group of some kind. Who are the leaders of that group and where are they and why are those leaders not speaking out against their own children? That's the question that needs to be asked. The same thing with the, the stuff in the Middle East, uh, which has been going on for decades and some writers are starting to ask those questions now. Well, instead of blaming this group or that group, why don't we start asking where are the leaders? Because those groups do have leaders in the world, they have leaders in Australia, what are the leaders of those groups in Australia saying? Are they speaking out against the issues? Because if they're not, that means they're supporting them. In the world, are the leaders speaking out against the wrongdoings? Because if they're not, they're supporting them. You know the leader by whether they get involved in saying, I will take responsibility for the wrong or I will distance myself and try and keep a squeaky clean image. Leaders don't try and stay squeaky clean. They get in there and they allow themselves to get dirty. That's how to tell a leader with integrity or not. And that's what I get when I read this passage. They had the people and they didn't want to kick the Christians out because then they would look bad. So what did they do? They went to the marketplace and they got some bad characters and the bad characters formed a mob and then the, they backed off, let the mob do its work. You see that in the world and when things go bad, you, you see that in the church. So as our church grows, be watching out for jealousy. Watch out for it in your own heart. And as you interact with the people that you are influential with, because every single one of you has people under your influence, be thinking, how, how am I encouraging jealousy? Or how am I encouraging people to work together and help make this place have more of an influence on the community? So those are some of the things that I see from this passage. We've only got up to verse 5. Like I said, we could go through and there are tons of other really big issues that we could look at as well. But that's the one which we've chosen for today. So just to kind of wrap things up, there's three things that we want you to take away. Uh, think about yourselves. If you're in a small group, these are things you can talk about when you get to your small group this week. Firstly, how to know a good leader to follow? Do they take responsibility for what their followers do? Or do they dodge it when things start to go bad? Secondly, what do we need to do to watch out for jealousy in our own hearts? As this church grows, if you're a leader particularly, how do you guard against your own heart becoming jealous and realising, I'm not as powerful in this group as I used to be and maybe my ideas aren't heard as much because other people have better ideas. How do we guard against that? And then thirdly, the very first thing we talked about at the start in terms of how do we know who to preach the gospel to? How do we know who to share the love of Jesus with? Because not everybody wants to hear about the love of Jesus. And, um, in some of my chaplaincy research that I've been doing uh, for, my, for my university work, uh, we're looking at some of the ideas of, well, what people, at what point are people able to hear the gospel? Because if you're hungry or emotionally drained or struggling with life, you just don't want to hear any advice about anything. And you don't want to hear about Jesus. So how do we help a person with their life and at what point are they ready to hear about their soul? 
Who do we witness to? And what point do we know who to witness to? Because the Bible does say uh, things about not throwing the seed on certain places and other places, and you've got the parable of the sower who sows it everywhere and it falls on the hard ground and the soft ground and the thorns and this, and some spring up and some don't, and there's a big, a big debate about, well, was the sower a really bad sower? You know, why did the sower throw it on the path? What a stupid place to throw it. Was the sower deliberately just kind of throwing it everywhere? And are we supposed to just throw the gospel everywhere? Or, as preachers of Jesus, should we be throwing the seed on good soil? What was Jesus trying to say in that passage? That's a really interesting thing to start grappling with. But one thing which we do need to be doing in our evangelism is listening to the Holy Spirit. And I believe this is what Paul did. Paul didn't go to places where he felt there was no opportunity. He only had a limited lifespan, he only had a limited amount of money, he only had a limited amount of time. So he went to Thessalonica, not Apollonia, because he believed that at Thessalonica they were going to be more receptive to the gospel and they would have a better response. And so he focused on the willing. And there's this little phrase here which we've been using in our small group training, uh, like one who walks in late to a meeting, we are constantly constantly entering situations where God has already been working and every time we come to a person with evangelistic intent or with hope to help or with a ministry or anything like that we need to keep in mind that we are entering that situation like one who's walking in late to a meeting we're not the first person to arrive motions have been passed some things have been decided for, some things have been decided against and we're arriving and we are invited to be a part of what God is already working on and we need to be careful how we hold that and realise that God's giving us a really precious opportunity and we're not a steamroller. So be listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying more than we're trying to push something that we feel like needs to be pushed. So, some really important lessons there for us from this passage and there's tons more, so I hope you go home this week and, and have a look at some of those topics and learn a whole bunch from Acts chapter 17. We are done! <laughs>